another edition of the Long Football Index Tactics Podcast, and once again we are joined by Stevie Greve, who, oh, well, it's just a Stevie Greve. What can you say, Stevie? How are you? <laughs> I'm all right, thanks. I've uh, been missing for a few months, but hi, more time now, so all good. Back to back to the day job. Aye, good stuff. So basically what we're going to talk about today is Manchester City and I mean it may seem like an obvious subject but I think it's obvious for a reason because they've been that good you know there's a talk of the town for the way that they've dominated the English Premier League so far and you know while, while some of our listeners might think this is a little too obvious and on the nose for what Warm Football Index is kind of known for maybe being a little niche and a little bit left field you know I, I promise that we will be a lot more in-depth than the usual just boring platitudes as to how good City have been. So uh, I think first up, Stevie, um, I just want to hear, like, h- how would you summarise this team? Like, if, if somebody, that you're, you know, if you're talking to somebody that, for some reason, you know, they, they know the football and stuff, but they just so happen that they've not seen this Manchester City team play, how would you summarise their, their qualities? You know, what's their overriding like, ethos and what other identifiable qualities? I think... You know, you have a lot of teams who are really, really good to good to watch, but it's because of the individual flair. Um, this is a team who are really enjoyable to watch because of complete control of the the situation, complete control of the ball, complete control of the space. And like, if you're, I suppose, if you're trying to sell it to somebody, it'd be like almost watching art. And you can look at it a hundred different ways, and you can see so many different things from different players, and it's. It's incredible how coordinated all the movements are on time. Um, if David Silva drifts really wide, that somebody fills in in the space that he's left. And I think Guardiola is a pioneer. I've said this before, and I think he will change how other teams now play in the English Premiership. I think that ownership groups will start looking at types of managers who can employ Guardiola style. But I think young players will now look at that, and parents will look at these teams and these games and go, "My God, that's amazing." How do we do that? And as soon as the question starts being asked of, well, why can't other people do it? That's when things start to change. So I think this this Guardiola team might be a pioneer in kind of the English-speaking language of football. Oh no, absolutely! I think I think that pretty much does nail it. And um, thinking back over the last maybe maybe 10 years let's say because you know everybody knows that football tends to go in cycles and stuff. And this is probably the most um, well, actually, maybe not to get ahead of ourselves because, you know, as, as far ahead as they're in the league, they haven't won anything yet. So maybe this is something that should be saved for the end of the season. But let's just assume they're going to win the league at least because I'm sure they will. This is the most impressive team that I've seen since, well, like, what, the 2008 Barca, which was also Pep Guardiola. However, this has been a work in progress. I mean, this just hasn't happened overnight. Uh, you know, not only was there before Pep ever arrived, there was a lot of, like, background set up to try and make it an ideal environment for him, you know, so they brought in a couple of the uh, ex-Barca directors and stuff like that, but um, when they did finally get their man, like the first season didn't quite go to plan, I mean there was obviously huge signs there and everybody jumped on Pep's back, you know talking about, oh you know, you can't do this in English football and you can't do that, it's not going to be that easy um, and a, a couple of the more obvious um, weaknesses in last season's team would have been probably the goalkeeper and uh, the fullbacks, but it was We'll start with fullback just now. So, I mean, last season their options were like Pablo Zabaleta, Bakri Sanya, Gal Clichy, and Alexander Kolarov. And as much as Kolarov is, is actually kind of flourished since he's moved to Roman and somewhere, I mean, the rest of them, I don't even think Sanya's got a, cl- a club yet. So, looking at how they did last season, uh, he, he was so sort of dissatisfied with them 
to the extent that you would often see like Jesus Navas and even Leroy Sané being used as like fullbacks or wingbacks. Uh, but if you fast forward to now, they've got Kyle Walker, Danilo, Benjamin Mendy, who's unfortunately got a long-term injury, and in Mendy's absence, they've been using Fabian Delph. Now, one of the narratives I picked up on from the summer when they spent, spent, spent was that people were saying, oh, they're spending so much, they're even spending heavily on fullbacks, which to me sounded like a kind of like an underestimation of the importance of fullbacks, both in general in modern football and to how Guardiola likes to play. So talk to us a bit about why upgrading the fullback position was of the utmost importance ahead of this season. I would say when you look back at the, the Barcelona team, the fullbacks were, were really, really important because they allowed them to overload the central areas. You know, Messi could play as a false nine and Pedro could take up a channel position. Maybe Alexis Sanchez or David Villa would take up a channel position and have more freedom because when they start making two or three diagonal runs from outside to inside, the fullbacks then become the free man on the outside and they can switch it, move the block, tell everybody over, then work a few more passes, some more diagonal runs from the blind side, then again the fullback on the opposite side is free. And then when you see how much space that a fullback has to cover defensively in Guardiola's team. They have sometimes 80 metres all the way down the outside to, to recover on their own. So the fullbacks are vastly underappreciated, I think, in Guardiola's teams. You know, a lot of fullbacks and some teams are really basic. They stay in shape. They go for the occasional overlap. They put a ball in the box. They run back. They get in position. They're really secure in their defensive position. Whereas in Guardiola's teams, fullbacks are often the free players. And if people pay too much attention to having their midfield line, maybe if they play 4-5-1, if their midfield line is completely spread open and the wingers are tracking the fullbacks, it just means that you're going to have complete domination in the middle. So you can't you can't defend the sides and the middle against Guardiola teams. You have to make a choice as to where you choose to defend from. So the fullbacks are huge. I, 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 you remember the Bayern Munich team, they sometimes play four fullbacks. They'd have like Lamb, Rafinha, um, Bernat and Alaba. And I know Lamb's a nominal fullback because he would play defensive midfield, but he could cover into fullback and defend. And same with David Alaba, he would move from fullback to centre midfield and back. And if they played with a kind of a 3-3-1-3 sometimes they'd play with four fullbacks a centre-back in Xabi Alonso so you'd have different strategies for different sorts of games and I think he's always been a guy who values what a fullback brings and it was interesting the comments he made about Kyle Walker using his physicality to solve problems whereas when he gets older he's going to have to use his brain to solve problems Kyle Walker is a guy I've always thought was a really, really strong player. I remember speaking to Andrew Lessie um, when we worked on TV together and he was like, I'm not sure about Kyle Walker. He's got all these problems. And I think he probably does because he can use his physicality self-problems. But Guardiola has made him a better player. You see his timing of his runs, his delivery, uh, his passing through the lines diagonally from a deeper position is very good. So I think last year I tweeted a few times when people were criticising Guardiola, just wait until next season when he buys a couple of fullbacks. And we already saw at the start of the season with Mendy overlapping on the left. He's a crossing machine. Kyle Walker going down the right is just a running machine who, when he gets into really high positions, it allows De Bruyne to go deeper and allows him to put balls in the box from better positions. So um, the balance they give to the team is fantastic to allow the better players in the middle to try and have more space to break the lines and dominate the game. I Absolutely, because I remember last season, um, I think if there was one game 
that made me think, yeah, this team really does need some fullbacks. And like you said, wait till next season when they've got you know new fullbacks. The one game that pointed that out to me more than any was the uh, I'm sure it was at the Etihad. It was a nil nil against Man United, and you know as you'd expect, United just sat in a very very deep low block for um, pretty much the entire game, as has become the Mourinho sort of template against the big teams. But the thing that made me notice it was that. Like I said, they sat in a very, very low block and they sat really narrow as well. And the only time you would see one of the United fullbacks making a sort of like lateral movement out wide was when one of the um, like City wingers was in that position. But there was nobody to make an overlap whatsoever. There was nobody to exploit the spaces out wide that United left. So then if they did have those fullbacks in that game, you would think that then that would that would pose a question for United because then what does the United fullback do does he stay narrow or does he move wide and then that in turn creates spaces and stuff but because he didn't have that option then that game finishes a nil-nil so that's uh, like you said that's something that they've got this season that they didn't have last season and in terms of just fullbacks in general I mean I've always felt that um, you know, I've been speaking to a few mates about this in in recent well, recent years, really. That I think the skill set for fullbacks at the, especially at elite level, has changed because it used to be they'd be they'd be almost like wingers. They would say, you know, the attacking ones, or they're almost like wingers. But now, to me, it, it seems like they're basically just like rapid central midfielders with the sort of skill set that they need. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think uh, that's especially true in a Guardiola team. If he does, it could, even if he doesn't play them hugging the touchline, if we do do the inverted fullback thing, uh, you can tell that he, he, he likes players a bit like David Alba uh, at Bayern that, that um, routinely do play in midfield. The skill sets for the position do overlap quite a lot. But um, in, ter- uh, yeah, in, in terms of how this skill set changed actually for certain positions, it's probably a good time to move over to goalkeeper. And uh, I mean, last season that was a big talking point. I mean, not only because uh, Guardiola dropped um, Joe Hart. I'll leave that there. I'm, I'm not even going to make any further comment on Joe Hart. You can probably guess what my opinion is on him. But um, but because he, he initially replaced him with Claudio Bravo, who seemingly just couldn't even catch a cold, never mind the ball. Now, personally, I was I was surprised at Bravo's dip in form after he joined City because for all the years I'd seen him play, he seemed as solid between the sticks as he did with the ball at his feet. So I, I'm not really sure what happened there. I think it was just quite unfortunate, to be honest, that his, his form took such a bad dip. But this season, much like how they've upgraded the fullbacks, they now have Ederson in goal, whose distribution is so good, I think you'll soon see him volleying presence down the chimney from inside Santa's sleigh because it's 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 that it's it's it's, it's insane. <laughs> so uh, it helps that he's a pretty good shortstopper too. So tell us a bit about him and his importance to this city side because obviously it's far more than just keeping the ball out of the net. Oh, I, I like, and do you know what the funny thing about Ederson? I remember people asked me about him, like, what do you think of him? And I was like, genuinely, never heard of the guy. Because when you go to watch teams like Benfica and stuff like that, you're looking at wingers and centre midfielders, guys who might get sold on and things like that. Mm. Not once did I ever even think about Ederson. And you see his distribution. Forget how accurate it is. Like, I remember the first time seeing him playing for Man City and just going, that guy can kick it for miles. He can batter it about 80 yards. He can nearly put it in the penalty box on the other side from a from a kick out his hands or from his feet. Like that's incredible. I've never seen anybody who can kick a ball that far. But the fact that he can do it like a missile and get it to the guy's feet exactly where he wants it is incredible. And you see sometimes he gets the ball like against Napoli. I thought it was in, just it was incredible how often he would get the ball inside the six yard box, be really calm 
if somebody came to pressure him, he'd kind of adjust his body shape, fake a little pass, and then slip it in a gap for somebody else. And you're going, well, central midfielders would find that pass really risky. And this guy's rolling it into people with a perfect weight for them to turn or to play one touch. So, you know, it's not just as as long-range thing, which everybody, I think, notices, because if somebody kicks a ball 75 yards, you have to notice the fact that it's so accurate is incredible, but even in short-range areas where Napoli put a four-man, five-man press on them, he was splitting the press no problem. And it's you see the value of having a footballer in the goal. The fact that he's actually a reasonably good keeper, he makes some saves, he's decent one-on-one. We saw already at the start of the season, with, was it him that got clattered in the face by um, somebody many. going late? Yeah, like he's obviously he's a brave guy and he's got enough stature that he can come out and claim crosses, but the way Guardiola defends, there's a lot of tactical fouling, so he's got to be good at sweeping up because that's how most of their chances are, are lost or at set plays, and he seems to be reasonably good at set plays because um, I think they've only conceded maybe one goal all season from them. So he's he's been a massive addition, and I think it, it it's testament to the Guardiola analysis and scouting team that he was identified because normally it's it's really boring stuff like, oh, who do you want to sign with somebody that the media already knows? You know, is it a Courtois? Is it a Keylor Navas? De Gea? Like, for every team, it's always the same names regurgitated. Sometimes you'll get a Handanovic from Inter who's put forward or you'll get somebody new, like or you'll get a Donnarumma because he's the most obvious candidate or um, is it Araza Balaga from, I think he plays for Bilbao just now, like Kepa. So you have all these names which are kind of spouted around because one big team is linked to him I can't remember anybody being linked to Anderson so it goes to a testament to their scouting analysis team where you go they found a goalie that nobody else or seemingly nobody else was interested in maybe no so many people are taking notice of who's made Man City a dramatically better team this year because he's just frightening with the ball at his feet We'll see how good a goalkeeper is and, and there's times where they're, they're a bit under more pressure against better teams and against Europe's elite. But Man City, I don't think, are that far away from becoming one of Europe's elite. And I think a big part of that is Ederson's ability to break the press. But they do need another left-back who's better than Fabian Delph because as good as he has been, if he's playing against somebody like Arjen Robin, he's going to get destroyed. So as good as Ederson's going to be, they still need a little bit of reinforcements in front of him. Aye, for sure, and uh, that'll, that'll be something I can want uh, quite soon actually. But what I was going to say about Ederson and kind of about Benfica in general is that they, they've they've seemingly got this kind of recent track record of of uh, producing like elite level goalkeepers because before um, before Ederson they had Jan Oblak, and um, now that Ederson's gone they've signed um, one of the sort of wonder kid keepers uh, that everybody that plays FM knows him, you know, uh, uh, Mille Swila, the young Belgian who is, uh, had an interest in a couple of games against United. Where he was quite unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, he really carried the ball in it one time, and then it basically went in off the back of his head, off the post, another game. But um, he does look like a very impressive keeper. But do you think? Um, I think you've touched on this before in other podcasts where you talk about, and actually, you kind of you kind of mentioned it in this podcast as well, where because you think that Pep's teams are so influential that it's therefore going to force other teams to change the way that they even look about football um, or the clubs so the way that they would approach managers um, is going to be sort of their own version of how City approached Pep so do you think that You've seen, we've seen it in recent years, really. obviously like Manuel Neuer is obviously the, the most um, obvious example. Now you've got people like Ederson, you've got Man- uh, Ter Stegen. Uh, do, do you think that, is this something that we're going to see a lot more of now 
just these goalkeepers that are so good with the ball at their feet and just but not even not even just their technique but their vision is that going to be something that's going to become part of a goalkeeping uh, DNA for these youth players or is it still going to be focused on just in general keeping the ball at the back of the net because I don't know how much workload you can really put on young players Yes, it's an interesting one because um, I think it comes down to how progressive the coaches are within any national federation system and obviously within the clubs. But I remember doing um, some time at Feyenoord and Hido, Hido Vader and Melvin Bull had both said something along the lines of um, if they're not sure about a player being kept on past 15, if they have kind of the profile that they might be looking for from a goalkeeper, that they would consider training players who might be released into a goalkeeping position because they already have the vision and the footwork that they need to be a goalkeeper. They might not necessarily have it to play in the Eredivisie or to play at a higher level as a professional footballer, but they can do the basics with the ball at their feet. They can take it. They can play long passes. Um, as a player with an outfields mentality, they might be able to read crosses better. They might be able to understand the body language of players in possession, whether they play a through ball or a cross or a chipped ball over the top or the runs that a striker might make. So they might have a better in-game vision or understanding of what might happen in two or three seconds' time. But when you look at goalkeepers now, goalkeepers in youth level are being forced to play short passes rather than do what their dad tells them to do or what they see in the TV where they just get it and <laughs> kick it down the middle. So they've got on the, on the, the big men, the goalkeepers at professional football level, they just kick it down the middle. So that's what I should do. And we all know that you shouldn't really be doing that anyway. So the way that coaching is changing, more goalkeepers are being forced to bring the ball out with their feet to play shorter passes. Um, depending on how good the coaching staff is in any given club, they might play different types of passes other than the, the flat horizontal pass into a centre-back. They might try and play a diagonal one in their full-back or one at the midfield, which is more of a line-breaker. So um, I think that the way the game is evolving, coaching has to evolve and therefore the characteristics of each player in each position has to evolve and We'll see in, in maybe 15 years, pretty much every goalkeeper is going to be amazing with the ball at their feet. But also at the same time, all centre-backs are going to be amazing with the ball at their feet because of the way the game is changing. So I also said before that I think in maybe five years you're going to have more inverted fullbacks because Guardiola found a, a way to change the role of the central midfielder or the fullback and kind of mesh them together. So we'll also see that coming through because... You know, the things that happen at the top level spur analysis. And analysis then spurs things into coach education. And coach education then relates itself into clubs and manifests itself into types of players coming through. So I would say that in the future, it will be an absolute mandate that a goalkeeper is good with the ball at their feet. If they're not good with the ball at their feet, then teams become easier and more predictable to defend against because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think you can see it, um, even with goalkeepers that, that aren't new, but they've always been kind of decent with the ball at their feet. So something like Pepe Arena, for example, the way he's been playing at Napoli the last few years is kind of, it's a lot more evolved, shall we say, than the way he played at Liverpool. So it's good to see that it's not just young kids coming through or people that have been specifically trained to play in a certain way that are able to uh, you know partake in these sort of like... As, far more complicated sort of setups than it would be compared to just chilling down the pitch to your dad, you know? I mean, it's... Uh, it's well, according uh, to some journalist tactics, it's just shape and tempo, so <laughs> it can't be that complex. Well, true, true, true. But um, another thing sort of related to the, to the um, 
goalkeeping sort of well this is just more defence but it, it very much relies on the goalkeeper as well was one thing I noticed and it wasn't just in this game but I noticed it against Spurs and they've done it in a few other games as well and it, it's not just City because I think a few other teams that have done this but when defending a wide set piece, so like a wide free kick coming into the box, they, they've moved their line very, very high up the pitch, so it's not in the box, so then the opposition can put it into the mixer. They've left a massive gap between themselves and the goalkeeper. Now, do you think, again, this is something that could catch on more as, as these sort of goalkeepers become more prevalent? Because the point I made when doing this was basically... I've long been a proponent of using a really high line when defending set pieces because to me it just seems logical because the crosses coming into the box will have to be floated and if your keeper is confident and has space to move into he should always be the favourite to catch that but I think where the, the difference comes in would be that's fine if you've got somebody like Ederson but if you've got somebody like Fraser Foster that just doesn't like leaving his line whatsoever then I don't know. I mean, but do you think you'll see more of this down the line as more goalkeepers like Ederson come through, or do you think that teams that don't have somebody like Ederson could actually use this sort of setup? It's an interesting one because I've seen over the years that coaches like Guardiola, guys that are kind of progressive and want to try and come up with new solutions to different types of problems, that they keep pushing the defensive line higher and higher and higher. And I think I'm probably of the same opinion as you. If my teams are defending crosses on the six-yard line, how many crosses can I realistically defend under complete stress and just feel like you're drowning that before you concede one? Because it only takes one little flick on and a misjudgment and the goalie doesn't have the reaction time to see it and react and stop it. So eventually you're going to concede one if you stand defending balls on your six-yard line. If you defend, you know, we had a rule when I coached Garwal in India that any time the ball went outside the box or were defending, that the defensive line had to get one step away from the 18-yard line because they were happy to defend 16 yards out. But you make one bad touch or one bad decision or a bad positional movement and then somebody's in on goal and they have a better chance of scoring. So just even if you take analytics involved in it, it's harder to score from 20 yards than it is to score from 15 yards from the same position. So if you're defending a free kick and the free kick is, say, 35 metres out and you're defending from 22 metres, it's going to be harder because the, the speed on the ball is going towards the goal if it's in swinging. If it's out swinging, the speed on the ball has to be reduced, which means people have to run into the box quicker. Now, if you take most attacking setups, a lot of them start with players kind of between the middle half of the goal and the back post. So even if you take somebody who's good at delivering the ball into the box, the same Mesut Ozil, if he clips the ball into the box, it's still really difficult to reach because of how far people have to run. If you have to run 15 yards onto a ball which is going over your head, it's really difficult to get any sort of grip on it or any sort of direction on it. If you only have to run two yards, you can redirect it, no problem. You can adjust exactly. your body shape on the run. So if this happens and more teams start defending, say, 13 yards away from the ball, your attacking runs have to start from wider to allow you to have enough distance to get the ball into an area where you've got the run and the attacking angle and the speed and the body shape to then make a decent contact on it. So you'll see, as more coaches do that, there'll be an evolution in the attacking positioning of teams who are defending or attacking free kicks because of it becomes a more natural situation. If they start deeper, you can start narrower. If they start higher up, you're going to have to start really wide. One counter-argument I would have to that is there might come a point where you take a really quick short free kick and you become two-on-one, uh, say, in line with the 18-yard line. But the defensive line are having to drop off and reduce the space in front of the goal, but there may now be 18 yards 
behind the defence where mm. a ball which is really well whipped in across the penalty spot will be relatively easy to tap in. So there will have to be new solutions to the problems of the defensive organisation from a set piece like that. So um, it'll be interesting to see how coaches evolve to that because if they start wider, they can still put the ball in the box directly or diagonally. If they start higher up and you start more central, maybe you start with a 2v1 on the outside and you whip balls in the box which are, are low and hard, which maybe the goalkeeper has more time and space that they're able to take command of these situations because it's more predictable. So it will be a, an interesting thing to try and keep an eye on and analyse over the next couple of years. Aye, because I, I, I've been thinking it for maybe about two or three years now because you think back to teams like, uh, you know, like Tony Pulisic's Stoke, right? And they were they were famed for their their strength of set pieces. Now, obviously, corners and throw-ins are one thing because, you know, the way the offside works and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's only really so much you can do with that. But if you've got a choice and you're defending against a team who's basically built on attacking set pieces, right? If you've got a choice from a wide free kick, I don't understand why you would then choose to be defended inside your six-yard box. I don't understand no. why why that would logically be what you would do against them because then you're just playing into their hands. So that's kind of that's where my thinking started on on why I thought it was a good idea. So it's kind of it's kind of good to see that um, some teams are are starting to do this. But like you said, um, there is downsides to it. So it'll be interesting to see how how it develops over time. Like you said, um, but yeah, in, in one of your main game videos, uh, you were quite focused quite heavily on. Pep and how he obviously focuses on his opponent's strengths and weaknesses as much as his own team's. Um, so can you give us an example this season of how he's done that? Uh, so, for example, Napoli and Tottenham are, are two very different teams, but he dealt with both of them. And it's not like he just rolled out the same team, the same uh, formation X, Y and Z and just happened to beat them because it was better. He catered his team's to combat in a very specific sort of style. So can you think of uh, some examples of the way that he's done that? Basically, because one of the arguments that gets put against somebody like Guardiola is that, oh, he just puts, he, he just buys the best players. He's always got the best players and he just puts them out there and plays. I don't think that's the case. No, that's the the ignorant argument, which is incredibly lazy. And if people want to peddle that, it's probably because they don't actually understand football because mm. of the garbage which is served up on TV. But anyway, we digress. I would say that <laughs> One of the most interesting things about him is um, Marty Pararno wrote a couple of books about him and I read the one when he was at Bayern Munich and he spends so much time on defensive organisation because for all the time they spend on the ball, when they don't have the ball, they need to get it back really quickly because he gets nervous if the ball's near his own goal, which um, is understandable because I'm the same. I start panicking if the ball's near my own goal. Um, so you spend more time working on the defensive movements, the body shape, the timing of the runs, the coordination between the units horizontally and vertically and how people cover spaces. And what I think was, was interesting was that they've got different pressing systems for different patterns of build-up. So you can tell if a team has patterns in build-up or if they have structures in build-up. Patterns is when you go like left-back, centre-back, centre-back, right-back, centre-back, defensive midfield, striker, for example, where there's a way that they move the ball to get into a situation to get somebody facing forward to then play a certain pass. So there's patterns which can obviously be read and then defended against much easier. Um, against some teams who have got a structure, which Man City are a team more towards having a structure based on zonal organisation, where they might go from left-back to centre-back, De Bruyne goes wide, Kyle Walker goes high and Sterling becomes a second striker, and then it leaves a huge space in the hole, which means when somebody comes to press, Sterling has more time and Walker has more space to run outside, etc. So what I found interesting was when they pressed against Watford, 
the runs of the wide players, so I think it was Sani and Sterling, were to go really wide and then arc the run and cut inside and cut off the centre-back to full-back pass on one side. So centre-back takes a touch, plays it to the other centre-back. Then Sterling starts off blocking the channel pass and then starts running as Fernandinho jumps up onto Sterling's position and Sterling goes wide, blocks off the full-back pass and presses the centre-back and it becomes like a vice. Both wingers are pressing inside. You've got... Um, Aguero standing on a defensive midfielder. You've got Fernandinho and Silva coming up, and it almost looks like a 4-1-5. So the way that they press against different teams I find really interesting because you might only press that way against two opponents out of 60 games. You might have your own way of pressing, which might be based on pressing traps, and you have the fullback wide, the winger inside, the striker goes diagonally, the midfielder tracks the runners. Um, depending on if, it's, if they have one or two players wide, you have different variations, but... To go from one game setting traps to one game blocking off channels to one game understanding that you're going to have to defend second ball so that you don't really press as aggressively, but somebody does, and create multiple layers vertically from centre-back, defence midfield, centre-midfield, attacking midfield, or striker, and so on. To have different layers and different levels, that takes so much time on the training pitch and so much analysis and going, right, against this team, this is how we press because of X, Y, and Z reasons. Against this team, they do this when they build up. This is what we want to prevent. This is what we want to allow. We want this to happen. Therefore, we'll allow that to happen and we'll win the second ball or we'll win on the wide pass or the central pass or whatever. So the difference in the way that they actually set up the press and defend and be in an organisational mode against different opponents is incredible. And I think when I worked um, for 10 Sports, I worked with a guy called Mark Seagraves and I remember sitting in a car with him every day him telling me, oh, Guardiola would definitely not be able to do that system in, in the English <laughs> Premier League. It'd be so difficult, so, so difficult, right? And I was like, Mark, you're, you're talking pitch. Of course it'll work. It's the same size of pitch. It's the same size of goals. The ball's ruined. The grass is the same. Just the players are a wee bit different. Ah, oh, but the physicality and the way that they play, you know, you, you won't be able to do it. Of course you'll be able to do it. It takes time, but you'll be able to do it. And I find it incredible that... Um, Still, people don't understand that that style of play is probably the most simplistic way of playing. Because if we take it in from a pure common sense point of view, it's easier for me as an amateur player to make a 10-yard pass to somebody's feet and easier for me to receive a 10-yard pass to my feet than it is for me to play a 35-yard ball into your chest. And it's harder for you to receive a ball into your chest with pressure from the side, pressure from behind, and somebody closing in the space as the ball's in the air and somebody's giving you a nudge in the back. It's common sense. It's easier to receive and pass the ball playing this way. The most difficult bit is to get in the position right and understanding how you move people to then attack the space and open up space for other people. So the problem is not that players are not technically good enough to do it. It's that the coach is not intellectually or tactically good enough to get them to understand it. Because the kids and adult players all want to play that way. The coaches then make it more difficult. I remember speaking to, um, where I worked with Steve Koppel for a few months, he said that if Guardiola turned up in the English Premier League and he got it right, he would rip everybody apart. He says that he would find it difficult initially because some players wouldn't be able to get how he wants to play or they don't have the, the physical traits for it or they might not be technically good enough for it, but they would all eventually get it. And you would see players becoming so much better because he would be able to do it. Paul Parker was of a, a similar mind frame of, if he gets it right, then he'll rip everybody apart. He said he was sceptical whether it would, would work all the time. Some games he would have to be a bit more direct. 
Um, some games he would he would struggle because teams would sit in a block and it wouldn't it wouldn't look right. He'd have to revert to crosses, which I think at Bayern Munich, you know, there was a lot of crosses put into the box because teams would sit deep and stop the space. So it's it's interesting that of the guys that you know have a massive background and respect in football and uh, uh, value their opinions. Paul and Steve were were very much and Terry Phelan was always like Guardiola will piss it. Like Guardiola's system will make it uh, a far, far better product to watch because of the way the game is played. And Terry Phelan was always one of, he'll definitely manage this. He says there's young coaches who could do it better than the old guys that are involved because they're better coaches. But it'll be difficult in the initial phase. It might take them two years. And I think that's how it's turned out. First season was, what do I need? How do I really make this work? And now, I've, now he's bought the tools that he needs to make it work and he's blitzing everybody. So I, th- I find it more the defensive aspect more interesting because his style of play in the system is rigid to a point. It's very much, this is how you will play. This is how the ball will move. These are the spaces we want to attack. When we attack these spaces, they will then do this to stop these spaces. Therefore, these other spaces will open up. We'll attack them. They'll block those spaces again, then somebody becomes free in the opposite side and you finish the attacks. And I think we see a lot of attacks constructed on the right and finished on the left, which is probably why Leroy Sane has a lot of assists and Sterling has a lot of goals. They start on the right and they move it around. The ball gets hit to the opposite side. Sterling 2v1 with Sane is a qualitative superiority. They're always going to win, even if it's 2v3, they're going to win. And then Sterling gets himself in the box and they get goals. So the attacking organisation stuff is obviously interesting to watch because that's what the product is. You watch that and you see that and that's the thing which to people is beautiful. But the defensive organisation I find really, really underrated because it varies from opponent to opponent. Whether they want to press high and make tactical fouls, which they're good at. Um, Whether they want to force passes inside whether they want to allow one player to get the ball because they think that he's a weak link or they want somebody to get the ball in a certain area to go 2v1 to hit them in the break. I just They're so well coached and so well organised that he might have worked on things in training for a week just to say, right, we might need this in the future, but this is a concept we're going to work on now because we might need it. might only be needed once or twice, but we might need it. So you can see there's a lot of teaching and learning going on where I think a lot of clubs are just a lot of trying to be in survival mode a lot. Yeah, I, th- I think teaching and learning is essentially the next thing I was I was want to talk about really because you look at players like, um, well, I suppose Nicholas Otamendi and uh, John Stones who both didn't they, they were amazing like they were terrible last season. I mean, let's let's not get it wrong. And I think especially for Stones because he's still uh, quite a young player and he's still learning his trade and especially at a higher level last season than he was used to at Everton, for example. So he, he was always going to have a learning curve, much like the rest of the team was going to have under Pep. So can, can you talk to us about how, how do you think those two players specifically, because that, to me that seems like the first choice central defensive partnership, if they're fit, the company will, will come in because he's, well, it's, it's Vincent Company, he's a captain, you know, and, and he's, he, he's still a very good defender, although maybe not as good as he was a couple of years ago because of the injuries and stuff he's had. So, But how, how do you think Otamendi and Stones have really improved? Because one of the things that I've noticed from Otamendi specifically, because you're, you're always going to expect a certain degree of like you know ball-playing centre-back from John Stones, but the amount of times you'll see Otamendi playing an absolutely brilliant line-breaking pass, he just drills it straight towards somebody like De Bruyne or uh, Silva that are in space, and it was it was a pass he just didn't even see, and he disguises it really well with like his body shape and stuff. And 
I think he's always had that in his locker, but he never really seemed to use it that much. You know, he, he was always more equated with basically making mistakes or going off his feet when he never had to. So, how how do you think that the, these players have improved? Nico Otamendi is like he's a really interesting one. I remember when when Cathro was working for Valencia, and I, I texted him said that's a that's a really really good signing, and um, I think they paid like twelve million for him. And mm. I spent most of that season watching Valencia when they got themselves into the Champions League and Paco Alcácer and guys like that came forward. And Nico Otamendi was basically a destroyer, an animal. Anything in the air, he attacked. Anything between the lines, he attacked. Anything that went behind the defence, he would recover. He was so fast, so strong, so dominant. And he, the first season he was in England, there was the dominance wasn't there. Um, the strength didn't look like it was there. The pace didn't look like it was there. Maybe because they were less well organised. Because Nuno's obviously a really, really good coach. Um, you see how well Wolves are set up this season. It's, it's kind of obvious how well they're drilled they are defensively. But this year you see where Otamendi that. He's actually a very, very good footballer. And when he was at Valencia, he was one of the decision makers on the left-hand side. Like Gaia would would make forward runs and Otamendi would try and find, I think it was Pablo Piatti on the inside left channel. And he would try and break the line. So he had the range of passing before. The ability has always been there. I would say that maybe in Man City that the tendencies for specific players would be completely different. Like if, if he takes the ball as a left centre-back, maybe David Silva would drop off and take it for him. Or last year, he'd just give it to Kolarov and Kolarov would decide what to do with it because he would play it to somebody and go charging forward. I think one of the biggest differences is he's a centre-back who's really, really good around the box, good at attack and stuff in the air, 1v1 physical confrontation. He's among the best in the world at. If your left-back is miles up the park, he's got so much more space to deal with. Then you take away from what his strengths are. If you then have Fernandinho able to drop into left-back to cover behind the press or fill in at centre-back and allow Otamendi to go a wee bit wider, then he looks better. Fabian Delph sits a wee bit deeper in the system because he plays inverted. So that kind of gives him a little bit more protection. But you see in games where he has to defend high balls, he's incredible at it. Whereas what I would say the difference between him and John Stones is this year is that their organisation in terms of knowing where each other are and dropping and moving at the same time with the same body shape onto the same line without even having to John Stones to look over his shoulder, for example. And there'll be times when they both drop off six yards and they stop, they don't look at each other, and then they shift a couple of steps to the left or the right, then they move up at exactly the same time. Now, whether that's because Otamendi's a far-side centre-back able to control that, maybe his English has improved, um, nobody knows because we don't work for Man City, but there's, there's a lot more organisation between the two of them and they move it the same rate, the same distances, the same time. And, and it's almost like they're attached to a rope and they're moving together. And I think that's one big thing, which is a huge important factor that we have to understand. John Stones, we expect to be good with the ball at his feet. But last year he was trying stuff which wasn't on, partially because the system wasn't really in place. I, I would say that Kyle Walker gives him a lot of help because if Kyle Walker can run 15 yards faster than Bakary Sanya... And he's technically far superior to Bakary Sanya <laughs> in terms of Sanya. When he, played for, when, he, when he played for Arsenal, I was never a fan. I never thought he was anywhere near good enough to help Arsenal win the league. So I was when when he left in a free, I wasn't even slightly bothered because Berrien's a much better player. But, you know, I think John Stones at right centre-back needs a really good right-back and he needs somebody who's quick enough to get in position in case he's not got time or he has to find a way to dribble at pressure. Whereas... Bakary Sanya, even if he did get in that position, his body shape to receive the ball was generally terrible and he would get forced wide and, and the, the ball would go for throw-ins or he'd have to clear it with his left foot. And 
there was different structural problems which which were evident last season, but at the same time, um, the speed and the body position and the timing of the movements of Kyle Walker makes a big difference for John Stones to just be able to evade pressure. Kyle Walker could be a better one-touch player, of course, but he's a far, far better player one-touch than what Bakary Sanya was. Yeah, and I think this this sort of ties in with a lot of what we've been talking about. You know, it takes time because the the, the two things I took away from from John Stones last season was that sometimes it felt like, uh, especially when he had the ball at his feet, he was trying too hard. He was. He could almost argue. I don't think this was actually the case, but he could almost argue. Oh well, now he's playing for Pep. He's getting kind of indulged. You know, he's got this massive ego now, and he's like he's trying to go on these wee like Franz Beckenbauer runs into midfield and play insane passes, and it just it wasn't coming off for him. But I think the flip side of that that I took away from it was you could tell, or at least I thought he was always learning. And whenever a mistake did happen, you felt like he wasn't going to make that mistake again. And uh, the, the example that sticks in my mind was uh, basically when he got bullied by Falcao um, yeah. before Falcao scored that ridiculous chip. Now, I mean, that's somebody that should not be bullying John Stones. I mean, if you just even looking at them, you should tell who should be winning the physical battle there, you know. But the fact that he let himself get in a position where he could get put off balance after it was... After it happened, I felt, you know what, you're not going to see that again because he's going to pick up on that now, both personally and the fact that somebody like Guardiola's got to sit him down and show him some footage and say, you know, look at what he did wrong here, blah, blah. So I think that this is this season, the way that this season is going, is just the result of so much work and so much development that it's, it's obvious that yeah, all the stuff that didn't go well last season, well, that's now, that's now fed into the way that this season's going. But let's say, Stevie, let's say that you're the manager of your beloved St. Johnston, right? <laughs> and you've, you've, been, you've, been there, you've been there for a few years and you've been absolutely smashing all comers, smashing them right into the Champions League and everything. It's been going great. And you've been drawn against Manchester City. How would you set your team up to exploit any potential weaknesses in Man City? But let's even say, because I think the obvious one at the moment would be Delph. You would say you could target Delph because he's not amazing. But let's say Mendy's back, you know, and City are at their full strength. How would you set your team up to play against them? Because it's one of the beauties of football. There is no perfect team, perfect player or perfect system. Everything has a downside. So how would you exploit them? I would try and set up first in a diamond. Um the back four would be pretty wide because you don't want to give uh, Leroy Sané room to run at you. So you want to kind of be on his first touch at the absolute latest um, to try and defend really wide. Your three central midfielders in the base of the diamond would kind of cover the channels and almost mark Silva when he runs into the, the left-hand side channel and tries to combine with Sané. So you'd have a, almost a man-marking central midfielder on the right-hand side. The right-back would be 1v1 with Sané. That would kind of leave Fabian Delph on his own. If I have the choice of Sani Silva or Fabian Delph left on his own, we all know who's getting chosen. As good as Fabian Delph is, he's not as good as the other two. So you leave him on his own, plus he's in a deeper position. You have but let's say Mendy's playing now. But let's say Mendy's playing. Well, let's say Mendy's playing. You can still leave him in a deeper position and track his runs later on rather than leaving Sani free. If I if I mm. choose to defend against Mendy now, this is where the, the tip of the diamond comes in because the base of the diamond is going to protect the zone of where Sergio Aguero or Gabi Jesus likes to drop in and try and combine positionally between the two central midfielders. So the holding midfielder is the one that's got to screen the ball into the striker and just control the space, uh, but also drop into the space between the centre-backs and make it a five sometimes. 
because you don't want to be spread open too much. So the base of the diamond would kind of be like an extra centre-back defensive midfielder role, but their job is to protect the space in front of the centre-backs first. The far side central midfielder has to then tuck in um, positionally and try and screen off any diagonal balls from anybody into where uh, Sterling might be dropping into diagonally between the lines. And then the base of the diamond's got to try and play between pressing either Mendy or Delph or whoever it is that's playing left back, but also be balanced enough to mark Fernandinho in defensive midfield, but no mark him as in follow him everywhere, as in block the space that he's in, but be able to be within pressing distance. So whether you have to double up on, on David Silva or whether you have to shift over and defend uh, Fernandinho at the base of the diamond to try and just cover all that space situationally, depending on the first touch, the body shape, the the receiving angle of whoever's playing left back, then that becomes a different solution and you have two or three different ways of doing it. Then you have the centre-backs trying to be in pre-transition areas or blocking in to block off the, the front three. So it might in some cases look like a 4-3-3-0 where you have the two strikers dropping off into the same zone as the defensive, the, the top of the diamond. So then they two play in almost the channels. The problem you're going to end up with that is if you end up too flat, they'll start breaking your lines anyway. So you need to be kind of staggered. So you try and allow the ball to go down the left in, in the first phase, block up the right-hand side, force them to go to the left, shift them over and then start trying to defend the left-hand side. The problem you've got with that is Sterling and Silva are good enough at one-twos and one-touch play that you've got to accept that you're going to have to defend some balls which end up within the width of the 18-yard box but on the outside. If we're then looking at how we defend on the right, we try and allow Kyle Walker to receive the ball in a deep and flat position in line with Stones, but then block all of his, his diagonal exits. So as in anything into the space between the lines, if De Bruyne's there or Fernandinho's there, if he then plays the ball inside and goes on the run on the overlap, you try and make sure that your left back is in position where you've got four or five yards on him because he's going to beat you for pace because he's phenomenal. He's so fast. The problem you end up with that is who picks up De Bruyne, which means that the far side centre forward on a circulation phase would then have to drop in and be in a position where they can either cut off the ball from Otamendi to De Bruyne or Stones to De Bruyne in a right back position and allow them to be pressed diagonally, then you shift up your second line and you try and cover it and you be uh, more progressive with your defensive shape. But if you're unable to do that, the left side centre forward will then cut off circulation and try and make them go into, into pressure, whether it's to Sterling back to goal or 1v1 with Kyle Walker or 2v1 with Kyle Walker on the touchline and try and force them you know, in a difficult position where it's difficult to cross. So to try and start off a diamond in the middle with two strikers who kind of cover between centre-backs and full-backs and then shift over as the ball moves and have different compensation mechanisms. The defensive midfielder, the one at the base of the diamond, would be a really, really vital role because it'd be, have to be somebody who can screen and block and, and leave passes on to be intercepted, but somebody who's also clever enough to be close to the centre-backs to fill in and make it a five when you're in your own third. So it kind of looks like more of a 5-3-2 or even if you ask the far side striker to drop in at a midfield position and make it almost look like a 5-1-3-1 a if you like and try and play multiple layers because if you don't play multiple layers, you're going to get beat. So it's, it's one of the things where you could sit and do the analysis on them figure out roughly what their percentages are. But you know as well as I do that he's going to have sussed out your defensive system within five minutes. Yeah. So Guardiola's going to figure out what you're going to do then start manipulating what they do, which means that 
if you're not as good as him at analysis and if you're not as good as him at actually coaching players to solve different problems, within 15 minutes, he's going to figure out your whole system because they're moving the ball just to test you. And then they'll go, right, Sterling, you go wide and Walker, you go deeper. And then De Bruyne, you play higher and Fernandinho, you go in the right back position. Then you go, right, well, who marks him? Who defends that player? Who presses up? Because we'd spent a week working on De Bruyne in the right back zone. Now Fernandinho's there. <laughs> and then you've got, then you're going, right, well, who deals? It's the same zone, you dafty. You just pick it up in that zone. Well, Fernandinho's not as good at deep crosses as De Bruyne, so it's completely different. So it's like, it's one of the things where it's probably a monumental task for a coach, which is why some guys work at the top level and some guys don't. And it's it's one of the things where you, I, I would say, I haven't worked at first team level in Europe, but um, I would say that as a staff, everybody has to be completely on board with what do you accept? Because they're going to attack. What do you allow? And then you have to then work from that. Like, what do you try to prevent? What do you allow? And then how do you make sure that your transitional actions are going to allow you the best chance. I would say, I would say playing with two up would give you the best chance of getting out, um, purely because the centre forwards can drift wide and go in between the centre backs, or one can pin one while you've got a ten coming just underneath to lay off, and one runs beyond it. Two v one for them is a qualitative superiority. Two v two is probably still a qualitative superiority for them, but it gives you at least a chance of getting out while maintaining a base of seven guys back, which is what you're going to need anyway, even against five guys. So it's it's a task where I would say that you probably play a four three one two or a four four two diamond and you have different compensation mechanisms for as the ball travels and which spaces you want to block off. But when they start pinging sixty yard balls diagonally from the middle to the other side, that's when you've got to really, really work. And that's where the threat will come. Because you can block up one side and because of the precision of the ball it from the back, if Stones dings a a, a two touch ball out to Leroy Sani that's when you've got a problem. So you're going to then have to be so not not overly compact that the switch does you. But you need to be compact enough that you don't just get broken down anyway. So it's it's one of the tasks where they are that good that you have to come up with some sort of plan and then you have to be prepared to completely reevaluate that plan after 15 minutes when Guardiola starts tinkering with his system to try and get the better of you. And this is kind of where the problem lies because you've put so much effort into stopping them, what do you do when you've got the ball? Aye, exactly. You have 20% of it, if you're lucky. If you have if you have 33% possession against them, then you're lucky. So you need to play really, really risky when you have the ball and commit bodies forward. But if you commit bodies forward, they're also faster than you. Their attacking transition is faster than your defensive transition. So... Like, you just go at them and you hope that if you shoot, the goalie doesn't catch it. It goes out for a goal kick and you can all run back again. <laughs> I wouldn't even try and press them. Because there's no point in trying to press them anymore. You would try and press them to pen them in because it's the right thing to do. But their keeper can just batter it over the top of you. So unless your back four are really wide and really stretched and are, are really comfortable defending you know, longer balls or high balls and don't feel stressed by that, if you mess it up, you know, they've got 30 metres to go and they're so fast that they'll get them behind. So I wouldn't press them. I think coaches like me, I want you to press me because I'm going to be able to coach my team to play through you when you go to press. So pressing me is, is, is there's no point in doing it at certain levels. There's also no point in a team to the level of St. Johnston, for example, even if I get them in the Champions League, <laughs> pressing Man City because they're just going to break you down anyway. 
So you might as well just sit in a medium block and then defend from there, and then at least it gives you some space where you can counter-attack into and give a wee bit of threat. Whereas if you try and press really high and you mess it up, it's 5v4 or 5v5 with 40 metres to go. If you give them that 10 times, they're going to score. So you, you can choose to not press or you can choose to press. Pressing plays into their hands. Not pressing means that your zonal organisation helps you. I would also say that Shakhtar kind of set out a template for how to play against Bayern Munich, that you kind of play almost 1v1 all over the field, but you have a spare man in the middle of the park just stabilising the game, which if you've got players who are good enough to compete with a 1v1, then maybe that might be a, an interesting way of doing it. You start off zonally and do kind of what Atalanta do and shift laterally before somebody goes vertically to press and almost goes man-to-man. So, yeah, like Shakhtar from two or three years ago and... Uh, Atalanta from last season kind of have shown a couple of templates for how you might be able to defend against them if you want to go and really fight against them. But it doesn't really matter what you do. They're that good. They're probably going to beat you anyway. You might as well. Aye. <laughs> I, mean, I think this is the, the good thing about about, uh, about managers like Pep is uh, I need to stop calling him Pep like he's my pal. You know what I mean? Aye. Guardiola. <laughs> but, uh, aye, but, you know, they come up with stuff that's so good that other really good managers need to come up with stuff to stop it. And then in turn, that means that Gradual is going to have to come up with something else to try and stop the thing that's stopping them from doing the first thing. And this is this is what makes football good. It's not the fact that Guardiola makes one team that then is really good to watch. Is that he makes other teams have to be better because otherwise, what's the point? All they're going to do is show up and get smashed every time and even if they smash everybody else in the league they're going to finish second because this other team's much better so Aye. you know it it, it 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 propagates a sense of improvement from everybody because they have to there is no there is no point not trying to catch up with them and then I, th- I think maybe long term their hope is the fact that Pep's going to leave and go somewhere else because you know, maybe, maybe 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 that's the best way to do it. But you know what I mean? Like it's it's, it's you need you need people like Guardiola. You need people like a Thomas Tuchel, uh, Maurizio Sarri. You know all the rest of the hipsters' choice of coaches. You know because they do things that are interesting and they do things that challenge other coaches out, um, to maybe get themselves out of their comfort zone and innovate. And that in turn makes the game better for people at home, for people in the stadium, for people like us that talk about it on podcasts, that write about it on the site, it makes it better. And, you know, because I'm not a Man City fan, I know you're not a Man City fan, we, we, we both might be Guardiola fans, but we, we we love watching them because it's just, they've brought so much and so, something so different. And it's not even the fact that, oh, Guardiola just shown up and being like Guardiola because they're not really... Well, they, obviously they share similarities, but this, it's not like we're watching Barca 2008 no. or Bayern 2013 here or anything like You know what I mean? Like They're, they're actually completely different. Exactly. Like, exactly. like Barca, Barcelona had a lopsided system where Dani Alves kind of just doing whatever would balance Messi. And then Xavi would play really deep and Busquets would play make and rotate position and come higher up. And it was this this system and the Bayern Munich system and the Barcelona system, they're all actually completely different. Same style. I want the ball, you don't get the ball. I get to foul you when you win it back, prevent counterattacks, try and counter press. Man City will put in some crosses, Bayern Munich put in loads of crosses, Barcelona didn't do any crosses. Barcelona didn't play with a striker half the time, Bayern Munich played with five. Man City are playing like like a 2-3, two, 2-3. Three, two, three. Like, 
this is what I find what, what was interesting about what you said there is because he changes so much, other people have to change to get better. And I remember one game watching, um, I think it might have been when Real Madrid might have beat Barcelona 2-1 or 3-2. And Mourinho played a completely different pressing system than he ever did before. Like normally it was shift laterally, shift laterally, shift laterally, drop off, set the trap, kind of win it back at fullback and launch Cristiano behind. And they played like a diagonal press with nobody in Cristiano's zone. So on the first press... You know, Pique would get it, Ronaldo would press him, the ball would get recycled, he'd kind of stay almost marking him and then force Barcelona down one side, which is something that I learned from. And then you take things where you go, right, well, he's adapted his system because that worked against that time. So then Guardiola has to find out a different way to beat that as a counterproduction of it. And you look at most British pundits on TV, everything comes down to what's your plan B? Plan B to Klopp, what's your plan B? Well, it's not just get it in the box. Oh, Guardiola, are you going to abandon your principles? No. Why would I? Plan B is get it in the box. That's what you want me. You want me to go long. Every single coach who has been really successful in another league who doesn't even speak English properly goes to the, goes to the English league or even in the Scottish league and comes up with some new ideas and the media want it to fail. And I think this is probably why I will, ne- I will never get on British TV is because I want that to succeed because it will provoke people from our isolated kind of culture to go, well, actually, we maybe do need to change. People from outside know what they're doing. Whereas in our one, we wanted to fail because um, we want to believe that our ideas are good and they're still valid and because they haven't really evolved that, they're still they're still helpful. Where the, the reality is England haven't won the World Cup for 1960, since 1966 and Scotland haven't qualified for World Cup since 1998. So clearly it isn't any good. We all have mm-hmm. to agree on that. So the way that the game is perceived and portrayed and spoken about in the media then has to become part of the public conscience. Then it has to filter its way into how people think and see the game from under sevens. And until that changes, there will never be the widespread changes necessary at the youth level for us to actually produce enough really good players where guys like Guardiola are no Catalan coaches coming to Britain. We need Scottish coaches playing the same way who want to implement that style. Guys like Catherine want to come in and do that. That's fantastic. What happens? They get pilloried in the media because it's some something new, something different. Do we have other... Aye, disgraceful. But we also have other coaches in Scotland who are capable of doing that who will never be given a chance. There are guys in England who are more than capable of doing that who might never be given a chance at first-team level. So what needs to change is... is the, your dad patter on the telly and in the paper and actually embrace what's going on just now because this Guardiola team has to be put on a pedestal to make everything else better in youth football. For youth football to change, academy football changes. Academy football changes, professional football changes because these kids come through and they want to play that way because they can, therefore coaching must change with it. So um, I think that the Guardiola thing, as much as we are, enjoy it and you know as well as I know I'm not a Man City fan but I've watched every single Man City game this season I've recorded them all on TSN I've sat and watched every single one of them downloaded all of them and done analysis on them this is this might be a once in a lifetime team who only get better and we're talking about a team halfway through a season and normally normally halfway through a season I'm like just wait until May and April when trophies are given out Aye, aye, this is the exactly. first time I've ever been like, no, nah, don't worry about May and April. They'll be winning trophies. So let's just understand why they're going to win these trophies 
before it happens so that at the end of the season when somebody has to do analysis on them it's actually an informed one rather than a lazy one no for sure and, and that's the thing it, it, it is like like we said uh, it's getting really not even getting it's gotten it's gotten really tiresome now with the way that the large swathes of the media uh, they're, they're so desperate for him to fail or uh, not, even, not even just Guardiola like we said people like Guardiola people that have got different ideas you know, and they're so desperate for it to fail that it's always something that I end up referring to. It's just, it's just pure Brexit. You know, what I mean, that's what it feels like. It's just, it's so, you're so reliant on your own ideas that aren't working that anything different you want to shoot it down. You're desperate for it to fail to make yourself feel better, and it's pathetic because what what does that achieve other than self destruction? Because that would be fine to an extent if what you were doing in the first place was good, but it's not good. It's not good enough because you've been overtaken by Spain, Germany, even uh, Italy now. You know, like all all these teams, the coaches are so far ahead of anything else. And I think it says a lot that, uh, you know, everybody talks about um, or oh, young coaches don't get a job and stuff like that and blah, blah. Aye, well, you know, isn't he, isn't he Johnny Fordner coming along half the time and taking the job? It's Tony Pulis and Alan Pardew taking the job. You know what I mean? They've had enough cracks at the whip. They're already millionaires. They don't need another job. Go sit in bloody BT Sport and talk shite, you know what I mean? Rather than blocking somebody's path that, that that's probably stuck in the championship. Well, you know well, well, I mean? well, 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 let's not put them on BT Sport and no, have them well, exactly, exactly. Let's just not have them anywhere near yeah. stuff. Exactly. <laughs> and I shouldn't be saying that considering the article I wrote the other week there, you know. But, you know, I mean, like, you, you, they can they can be on, all right, fine, they can be on Talk Sport because let's face it, there's an audience for that sort of thing, aye, you know what I mean? Aye. And that's what that is. They can go over there. Or, you know what, they can, they can hop on on the plane and go join Richard Keys wherever he is, you know, like earning his millions talking about I don't even know what he's talking about. Just yeah. I, 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 I don't even I, every time I see his face, he just he looks like he's been stung by a million bees now, you know what I mean? And I wish that he, I, I wish that he was in real life because just come on. But anyway, I think I think this is <laughs> this really quite surreal ranting note that we've got to here at the end. It's probably a good place to end it because I think I think that, that sums up what what's good about Guardiola's team and people like Guardiola because it's not just a football it's a fact of what they can hopefully what they can hopefully bring to the wider game of football people's understanding of it and an appetite for something better than just you know lumping it up to your dad up front so before we go uh, is anything you want to plug Stevie your um, your website or that sort of stuff right so I spoke about this probably about a year ago about um, I'd made an e-learning course so mm-hmm. just now we have some graphic designers making um, some of the graphics better uh, we have somebody copywriting it because my grammar and spelling is very very bad which is a problem with being dyslexic um, oh, so uh, that will probably be in the middle of January so if anybody's interested in, in you know doing the course and learning a little bit more then feel free to get in touch I put a thing about it on Twitter last week I had um, I think 264 messages, which I had to reply to, and then someone linked in. So it's been a mental week. So if you have actually messaged me and I haven't replied, please don't shout at me or give me any stick because it's been mental. I didn't expect the response I was going to get, so it's a bit overwhelming. But um, I look <laughs> forward to thing, being... Ah, it's a good it's a good thing. Um, I mean, my mum would like to buy a house at some point, so please help. So, um, mm. yeah, so that'll be out in January and... I'm going to put out some discount codes for people because it's after Christmas and it's not really about making money, it's about helping people. So, yeah, that'll be at middle of January, I hope. 
Excellent, sounds good. Well, you can follow Stevie at StevieGave on Twitter. You can follow me at Odnedge, that's O-D-N-E-J. Uh, you can follow World Football Index on Twitter as well. That's at World Football I. Visit the website, worldfootballindex.com. There's always really good articles going up there, podcasts, all, all, all sorts of good stuff. I mean, you just come along and, and, and support it as much as you can, spread the word. Uh, Stevie, thank you very much. This has been a, a very fun and informative um, discussion, so hopefully we can we can get you on again soon, maybe at the end of the season, just to sort of say, "I we were right," you know, we were right because City have won, have won the quadruple, and uh, you know, <laughs> no, but we'll see how it goes. But anyway, thanks, thanks again, Stevie. We hope to have you on again soon. Cheers, pleasure. And for everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. Like I said, spread the word, and we'll catch you next time. See you later.